I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen. throwing her off the Patapsco River Bridge. I mean, that's just, you don't do that because you're having an argument. Great Depression, not long after Prohibition, they're worrying about bootlegging gangs. Because some prostitute told him that the car could be found in a garage owned by a former D.C. officer named Green. It was a huge deal. It was headline news. I don't want a single word written about that case. Do you understand? There's a possibility it could be solved one day. Welcome back to Shattered Souls, The Car Barn Murders. I'm your host, Karen Smith. This is Episode 6. This podcast may contain graphic language and is not suitable for children. Previously on the Car Barn Murders. It was closing in on April 1935, and two months had passed with no solid leads to follow. The forensic ballistic information on the 32 caliber semi-automatic was helpful, but without a weapon to compare the casings and projectiles to, it was of little use. No fingerprint evidence was recovered on anything, including the cage door to the ticket office. Until the detectives found the gun, had a witness come forward with credible information, or an informant started running his mouth, they seemed to be at an impasse. A trip to Philadelphia in pursuit of gangster and multiple murderer Tony the Stinger Cugino and his crime family was a bust, and the detectives were back to square one on any potentials on the Carbarn case. 
They had rounded up the usual suspects in Maryland, Virginia, and D.C., and everyone seemed to either have an alibi for the night of the murders, or they were unable to be placed in the area at the time. After his return from Philadelphia, Detective Volton found a note on his desk that said two Kensington men, Luke Johnson and Arthur Waugh, had been out all night on January 20th, and Brass and Volton brought them in for questioning. Luke Johnson's story seemed believable, but Arthur Waugh's interview went sideways. Detective Volton pinned Arthur down by asking him about his relationship with Emery Smith, a subject he couldn't avoid. Arthur was married to Emery's first wife, Myrtle. Myrtle's maiden name was Johnson. In short, Luke Johnson was Myrtle's uncle. Without going into the whole skinny of that sordid mess, here's the long and short of it. Emery Smith divorced Myrtle in the mid-1920s after he alleged infidelity on her part. He married his second wife, Edith, a couple of years later. Arthur Waugh married Myrtle, and now he was separated from her at the time of his interview, and he told the detectives that she had cheated on him, too. Myrtle was now living in downtown D.C., and she had custody of Arthur's children. Arthur Waugh was destitute, and he had no permanent residence. Instead, he was jumping from Luke Johnson's cottage to his brother's houses in the same neighborhood off Lawrence Avenue in Kensington. During Arthur's interview, it was really obvious that he was incredibly nervous and bounced between subjects without giving straight answers to the simplest of questions. When the detectives focused on the night of the murders, Arthur couldn't remember where he stayed that night, but he did say that he was supposed to go to work first thing Monday morning, and he was in all night, somewhere. He insisted that Luke Johnson would vouch for him, but Luke Johnson told the detectives that he was pretty sure that Arthur didn't stay at his cottage that night. It was an absolute mess. When Detective Volton zeroed in on Arthur's marriage to Myrtle, and his affiliation to Emery Smith, Arthur admitted to going to the Chevy Chase car barn numerous times at night to talk with Emery Smith. He said that Emery had tried to warn him against marrying Myrtle because she'd stepped out on him. Arthur married her anyway, and now he was going to the car barn to ask for Emery's advice. Arthur said that Emery Smith was as best a friend as he had in this world, and they sat on an idle trolley car to talk about Myrtle and what Arthur should do now that he found out she'd been cheating on him. Detective Volton asked Arthur if Myrtle was seeing somebody else, and Arthur said, I've not talked to them to find out where she's living and if she goes with 20 others. She took my kids with her, and I tried to get them. One time when I was downtown, I passed by 610 F Street Northwest, and saw one of my kids standing in the doorway. I wanted to see him, so I went inside, and his hat was in there. I slapped him in the face and then went back out. Volton continued, saying, Well, your wife apparently knows a lot of people in Washington, doesn't she? Well, I guess she does. Who was the man inside of Myrtle's house that Arthur Waugh hid in the face? His name was Harold Freeman. And Arthur said that if Myrtle was running around with a man like him, then the friends she'd made in D.C. were no good. 
Arthur Waugh had been a cuckold after being warned by Emery Smith not to marry Myrtle. The only information that was decipherable in Arthur's interview was that he considered Emery Smith to be a good friend. Yes, his alibi was unknown, even to Arthur, apparently. It seemed like he was a blackout drinker, and that could have affected his memory in the two months that had passed since the murders. In the detective's eyes, Arthur Waugh's motive was money. But would he brutally murder one of the only friends he had? The ex-husband of his now-estranged wife? It seems like the finger of fate would point right at him. And that's where he was in March of 1935. Arthur Waugh was released from custody after stewing in the lockup for a couple of days. Even though his interview was a washout, Volton didn't have nearly enough to charge him with the crime. But a few days later, Arthur's younger brother, Clarence, was brought into the precinct to answer a few questions. Clarence Waugh was 21 years old and living with his brother, James. He was also out of work. He was asked about hanging around Dan's hot dog stand at Chevy Chase Lake. That's the same hot dog stand that eyewitness Ernest Carter hid behind. Clarence said that he did go to Dan's a lot during the summer. The detectives asked him about Arthur's drinking, and Clarence said he did get drunk quite often, especially when he went into the district with his buddy, Charlie Cooley. Charlie Cooley was the son of the former Montgomery County police chief. Clarence said he knew that Arthur had been meeting with Emery Smith to talk, but he didn't know the subject or why. Clarence didn't have a whole lot to add to the investigation, and he was released after a few hours. A couple of weeks later, on March 23rd, another man named Harry Simon was taken to the Montgomery County Precinct to be questioned. The context for Harry Simon's interview wasn't clear at first, but it ran six and a half typed pages. In the middle of the interview, it became clear why the detectives wanted to question him. Harry Simon was part of the Waugh Johnson family, and he was married to Myrtle's sister Lillian. It seems like the whole investigation was now becoming a family affair. Simon lived on Lawrence Avenue, same as everyone else. From Simon's clipped and smart-ass answers to the detectives, it was pretty obvious that he was no stranger to an interrogation room. And like everyone else in the file, I researched Harry Abraham Simon, born August 1904 in Yonkers, New York. That was the information he gave to Volton and Brass. I've concluded that his name was an alias. There's nothing in any available database matching that info on Harry Simon. And the detectives keyed in on that right off the bat. You use aliases to that name, don't you? No. Is it not a fact that you've been arrested under other names? No. You have been arrested before, haven't you? Yes. Where? In New York, for disorderly conduct. What else? That's all. What was this disorderly conduct? Suspicious person? No, it was pertaining to a speakeasy. You know what I mean by suspicious person, don't you? Yes. You know plenty of racket, don't you? Yeah. So Harry Simon was admittedly in on the DC rackets. He admitted to hustling bellhops in New York City at the Marlboro Hotel, a notorious place for prostitution. 
he ran an orangeade stand, meaning bootleg liquor, for a man named Tony. The last name was redacted from the report. The point is, Harry Simon, or whatever his real name was, was pretty deep into the East Coast underworld. He admitted to going through Philadelphia on his way back from New York City on January 14th, and he said he stayed at a rooming house at 8th and Race Street. 8th and Race was the mainstay for racketeers in Philly, where they would meet up to plan crimes and takeovers of other districts. That information did not escape Volton and Brass. They'd learned a few things on their trip to Philly, and the area of 8th and Race Street was one of them. Detective Volton prodded Harry Simon on why he stayed at that particular rooming house when there were several others much closer to the bus depot. Harry Simon's wise-ass retort? I asked a cop if he knew a decent place where I could stay. Volton hit back, mentioning that Joe Payne's pool room was across the street from that particular rooming house, and it was a favorite hangout of Bill Cleary's. He was one of Tony the Stinger Cugino's associates and the man they'd questioned on their trip to Philly just a couple of weeks prior. Harry Simon replied that he didn't know anybody in Philly. Backpedaling a little bit, he said he wasn't that deep into the rackets. He was only on the fringes trying to make a buck here and there. He did carnival barking and schlepped illegal rubber goods, meaning condoms, on the Atlantic City boardwalk. Seriously, this guy sold rubbers out of a briefcase. Simon had to know more than he was letting on, but he kept giving Volton and Brass his very special line of bullshit. Simon said that his wife Lillian was after him to go straight and get a regular job, but he couldn't find one. When Volton and Brass asked him about an alibi for the time of the murders, Simon said he was in Baltimore that night, waiting on a bus to get back to D.C. the following day. And at that point, Harry Simon reached into his coat pocket and handed Detective Brass his bus voucher as proof. Brass was flummoxed and asked why an honest man would need to keep his bus voucher for two months just in case someone asked for it. Harry Simon said that Lillian always asked about his trips and he kept them as proof for her to know where he'd been. Detective Brass asked if Harry Simon's name would be on the register of any rooming house in Philadelphia. Simon said that the manager put him down under the name Saunders since there was a cancellation at the last minute. Fulton and Brass seized this opportunity to put a dent in his alibi. So you keep bus vouchers for months on end, but you're okay with a different name being used on a flop joint register? You've been around the rackets long enough to know that that's a pretty bad argument. In other words, your alibi isn't so perfect then, is it? Simon said he didn't see anything wrong with it. The detectives countered and said, you couldn't prove by a register where you stayed in Philadelphia. You made a meet in Philly at 8th and Race, and you sent your boys down here to stick that joint up. Harry Simon flat out denied it. Well, tell us otherwise. Tell us where you were that night. For the first time, Harry Simon went off balance and stumbled. All right, give me a chance to recollect. All right, go ahead and recollect. Where did you stay the second day in New York? I believe I stayed with a fellow named Bloomberg. He, he lives in the Bronx. I don't know the exact address. You want us to believe that the second day in New York you peddled rubber goods, then you ran into Bloomberg and went into the Bronx? 
Yeah, I've known Bloomberg for years. Well, then you certainly know where he lives, don't you? He moved. We went to his house and had supper. Yeah, then what'd you do? Then I came down along 9th Avenue and hustled there a little bit. Where'd you sleep that second night? Seems to me I stayed at a place called the Prince Hotel. What name did you register under? My own name, Harry Simon. The detectives could be smartasses too, and this tit-for-tat went on for a while. But it seemed like Simon wasn't going to budge on his alibi of being in transit between Philadelphia and Baltimore. Detective Volton changed the subject and hammered down on his relationship with both of the victims. Harry Simon denied knowing James Mitchell or Emery Smith, despite being married to his first wife Myrtle's sister Lillian. Simon told the detectives that Emery and Myrtle got divorced before he and Lillian ever met, so he never knew him. With no definitive evidence linking Harry Simon to the murders, despite his shady dealings, he was released from custody. The detectives eventually followed up on Simon's claim about staying in Baltimore on the night of the murders. The owner of the rooming house vouched for Simon and put him in Baltimore that night. Harry Simon was a schmo, but he wasn't their suspect. As I was doing my research and read through the case reports several times, trying to weed my way through name after name, suspect after suspect, one name kept coming up, and I mentioned it in episode four, William Clark. He strolled into the DC police headquarters on the day of the murders because word on the street had reached him that his name had been dropped as a potential suspect. He decided to front run those accusations. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. 
The name William Clark kept popping up in the reports from several different people and on memos left on the desks of various police officers and detectives. In no less than four different places, Clark's name was brought into the investigation as being involved. Some of the information was unsubstantiated, but some seemed a lot more credible. The first mention of Clark's name was by a transit company worker named K.W. Gettings, who called in and said that William Clark had been seen in a car parked outside the ticket office at 14th and East Capitol Street on the morning of the murders. The detectives tried to get hold of Mr. Gettings at his residence, but instead they found his roommate, a man named Jones, and they took his statement. This was hearsay from K.W. Gettings, but it's all I had to work with since there is no statement in the file directly from Gettings. Jones relayed the information and said that Gettings told him that he was walking to work at the 14th and East Capitol Street car barn, and he saw William Clark and two other men parked in a Pontiac sedan on the southeast corner. It was around 4 o'clock in the morning on January 21st. A milk delivery truck made a turn at that intersection, and the headlights shined across the car, showing William Clark's face in the driver's seat. Jones said that Gettings knew Clark, and added that two other men would also be able to substantiate his story because they saw the car parked there too. Detective Volton followed up and spoke with those two mysterious men by phone, and both of them said they didn't know what in the hell Gettings or Jones were talking about. William Clark's name repeated itself several times in the investigatory notes, with people telling the detectives that they'd seen him in the days leading up to the murders out at the Chevy Chase Lake ticket office. Turns out, Clark had been employed at Chevy Chase for a short period of time, and he was trying to get his job back. William Clark spoke to Harry Gibbons, the daytime clerk, on Saturday, January 19th, just two days before the murders. Harry Gibbons said that William Clark came to the ticket office in order to get his change carrier and said he had an appointment to speak with Mr. Stevens, the superintendent of transportation, on January 21st to get his job back. Detective Volton substantiated that claim. William Clark did have an appointment with Mr. Stevens on the day of the murders. Was William Clark just a scapegoat that some people were tossing under the bus because they had some beef with him? Or was there more to the story that wasn't being told in the case reports? When somebody's name appears over and over again in a homicide case, that's a clue that maybe that person needs a little more attention. So I decided to do a little digging on who William Clark was. Clark lived with his girlfriend, Mary Branch, on Girard Street in D.C., he had worked for the Capital Transit Company for about a month in the fall of 1934. He and Mary Branch had been together for five years at that point. William Clark's friend, James Weir, lived a block away on Harvard Street. James Weir and Mary Branch had given William Clark an alibi for the night of the murders. William Clark, Mary Branch, and James Weir were all interviewed after Clark came into the downtown D.C. headquarters. Detective Frank Brass interviewed Clark and Mary Branch at the 8th Precinct. James Weir was interviewed at the 10th Precinct, and they all gave the same story. They went to a show at the Gaiety Theater and got home between 11.30 and midnight. They had something to eat and went to bed until the following morning. From the notes in the file, it doesn't seem like any of their interviews took more than about an hour apiece. 
After the detectives conferred about their stories, Brass and Volton moved on, since there was nothing to tie Clark to the murders other than some unsubstantiated sightings of him at another ticket office 10 miles away and unconfirmed hearsay from several people. With his alibi substantiated by two people who were with him that night, they moved on. A few more months went by with no new leads. Other cases were piling up and the detectives focused their attention elsewhere. Piecemeal information kept trickling in about the car barn murders and Detective Brass had his hands full with another murder case that hit the front pages for several weeks. It was a murder for hire plot and Detective Brass was certain that the hitmen on that case were the same ones who had killed James Mitchell and Emery Smith. In April of 1935, the case of Anne Ledane hit the news. Anne Ledane was a secretary in a bank who was alleged to have hired three men to kill her husband, Francis. John Carnell and John Boland were arrested and charged with conspiracy to commit murder. A third man, Harry Thomas, was on the run up in Philadelphia. Anne Ledane was also arrested as the mastermind of the plot, but she was released on bond. Her husband, Francis, the target, didn't believe the conspiracy, and he stood by her, despite suspect John Carnell's turning state's evidence. Detective Brass told the newspaper reporters at the courthouse that he planned to question Carnell and Boland about the car barn case, but there's no follow-up to the outcome of those interviews anywhere to be found, or any evidence at all that Brass even bothered. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Spentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. 
Behind the scenes, a shakeup of the DC Metro Police Force was going on at the highest levels of government, which meant the US Congress. And the Montgomery County Police Department was dealing with their own problems as well. In Montgomery County, a political affray was threatening to demote and fire a number of police officers, but the Carbarn case made it clear to the powers that be that getting rid of much-needed police wasn't the way forward. The newly elected Board of Commissioners wanted to reduce the size of the Montgomery County Police Force to save money, and they were being pressured to walk that back in the face of an unsolved double murder in their jurisdiction. This wasn't the time for a reduction in force, said the county commissioners. The Carbarn case kept a number of officers from being placed on the dole. In Washington, D.C., the rackets were out of control. One glaring Washington Post headline read, quote, One in every three criminals escapes penalty here. 1934 records show Lawbreaker has splendid chance of probation. Only 921 convicted in nearly 9,000 felonies. Only one in 10 convicted? That is a terrible, inexcusable percentage of failure, or perhaps deal-making. Politicos and their respective backers chose sides, and a special House District Crime Investigating Committee was formed. In an executive session, they planned to question several of the higher-ups on the D.C. police force and in local government about what they planned to do to get all these rackets under control. D.C. Commission President Melvin Hazen and D.C. Superintendent of Police Ernest Brown were the first on deck to be grilled by congressional members about just what in the hell was going on in the district. Representative Jennings Rudolph read the newspaper headlines to the committee, inclusive of the Carbarn case, as an example of the entire region gone rogue. He said, quote, I wish to call the committee's attention to these headlines, and I wish, too, to call their attention to the statement made on the floor of the House the other day by Representative Clarence Cannon of Missouri that there was no crime in Washington. These headlines, carried in streamers on the front pages of every newspaper today, brings the story of crime close to home. These are the things that we should concern ourselves with. Murder, collusion, and other such matters. Collusion? That's an interesting word to use on the House floor. Newspaper reporters attended every session, and an article mentioned one question posited to D.C. Commission President Melvin Hazen. Was he unaware that district inspectors, captains, and police officers were fraternizing with the underworld? Commissioner Hazen didn't answer. District Police Superintendent Ernest Brown was asked that same question, along with a follow-up about why he never requested the names of his own officers alleged to be working alongside racketeers. Superintendent Brown reluctantly said he would take down the names after the hearing was over. The newspapers were also filled with stories about sweet deals for certain people being made at the state attorney's office, underhanded pre-arrangements for racketeers of certain influence. One such deal to shelve a horse racing wire racket was detailed. The phone company was receiving kickbacks for providing real-time race results to various businesses across town, which allowed the bookies to take bets on races where they already knew the results. If the better placed money on a losing horse, the bet was accepted. If the person chose the winner, 
the bookie would tell them, mm, sorry, that race was over. To avoid criminal charges, the telephone company pledged to cut the phone lines. The general news company, who worked in collusion with the phone company, promised to stop disseminating printed race results to the district, and this was important because of an adjacent gambling scheme, the numbers racket. That used three digits between 000 and 999, kind of like the lottery we have today. The winning number was based on either the winners of the previous night's final three horse races or by using the final three digits at the close of the stock exchange. People could place bets as low as one penny against the odds, but those pennies, nickels, dimes, and quarters taken by the bookies and runners amounted to millions of dollars for the gambling kingpins. The bookies used the same shady premise to happily take losing bets on the numbers with foreknowledge of the winners. So promises by the phone company and pledges by the newspaper to cooperate replaced any criminal charges or heavy fines. That may have shut down one wire service and newspaper, but plenty of others were in line to replace them. No fines were levied on the companies and no arrests were made of any of the bookies, runners, bagmen, or kingpins. Another headline read that police were in collusion with bootleggers who paid graft to allow their liquor-filled trucks to pass through police checkpoints in transit to their destinations inside of storage warehouses or garages that were all well-known to the cops. Dozens of police raids at well-known underworld locations failed to net any arrests at all. Payoffs were the name of the game, and if your business ponied up, you were insulated against arrest. Refused to pay, and you took your chances and your lumps. Superficially, it seemed like speakeasies, gambling rooms, and prostitution houses were being knocked off, but the reality was that nobody of any influence was being arrested or going to jail. The rackets were operating with impunity, and the cops knew exactly what was going on. But there was a lot of money to be made on the sly, especially when their own paychecks were under threat. It was one shitstorm after another, and everyone was waiting for the other shoe to drop. The detectives' hands were full with not only trying to solve all the crime, but with saving their own asses from the chopping block. It was a free-for-all, every man for himself. The car barn case was shelved at that point, and they focused their attention on the other murders, robberies, and aggravated assaults inundating their desktops. Months went by without a mention about the car barn case. And a year after the murders, Almost to the day, in January 1936, a letter arrived on Detective Volton's desk. It was from an inmate of the D.C. jail named Horace Davis. Horace Davis said that he had information to provide about the car barn murders in exchange for a transfer from the D.C. jail to another location. He said that once the information he had hit the news, his life would be in jeopardy. Davis wrote directly to Volton on January 23, 1936. It was a follow-up letter. Davis said that he had already spoken to the U.S. Attorney, the Department of Justice, and the Superintendent of the D.C. Penal Institutions. Apparently, whatever Horace Davis had to say was substantial enough to get the attention of those departments. In his letter, Horace Davis wrote, quote, in view of the fact that I've told you all I could on the matter, and it is now a matter for the police to arrest those named, 
I see no reason why I should be confined, where such confinement is detrimental to my health and so forth. I think it would be fair if I could be transferred to a designated penitentiary to serve my sentence, and as I told you before, I don't want to be here or at Lorton when this case or any part of it appears in the papers, as it is bound to do. I will testify when summoned. Detective Volton interviewed Horace Davis, and what he had to say was explosive. Horace Davis said that on or about August 29, 1935, he was standing near Ford's Theater at 10th and E Streets in D.C., and an old friend of his pulled up and offered him a ride. He said he and this man had been in the Maryland Training School for Boys together back in 1920 when they were kids. Davis got in the car and they drove out to First in Rhode Island. Davis suggested they go grab a beer together. His friend had been drinking gin and said that beer would make him sick, so they sat in the car and talked. Davis asked his friend what he'd been up to over the years, and apropos of nothing, his friend said, nothing, since I pulled the car barn job. Opening music by Sam Johnson at samjohnsonlive.com. Underscore music by Kevin McLeod at incompetech.com. Shattered Souls, The Car Barn Murders is produced by Karen Smith and Angel Heart Productions. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.